0: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.
1: Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm On Whaley.
2: I'm Kyle Kondik, Managing Editor of
0: Crystal Ball. And I'm Larry Sabato, Director of the Center for Politics.
1: Larry, uh, we thought we would start with you today and ask, where would you place the 2022 election in historical context?
0: Well, I'll tell you that on the day after we find out the results. <laughs> I would have said the day after the election, but we all know we're not going to have the results by then. So let's hope we have them within a week or so. Uh, because th- these are close contests, and, and they are going to be a lot of really close ones, and you have to wait for every vote to be counted. And then there will be all the disputes And of course, there'll be voter fraud in the cases where a candidate loses. It's funny how there's never voter fraud when the candidates win, or not very much of it. Um, So I I can't give you an answer to that. This ought to be a fairly standard midterm. It's a midterm of a, uh, a presidency that is not terribly popular. It's not horribly unpopular, but it's not terribly popular either. And that normally means that the out-of-power party, in this case the Republicans, will gain usually a decent number of seats, maybe substantial number in the House of Representatives. The Senate is very idiosyncratic. Only a third of the seats are up. We'll just have to see. There are so many close races, and there are so many scandals, and, and frankly, quite a few terrible candidates. <laughs> in races, they should be winning, and may win in the end, but they're making it as difficult as possible for themselves.
1: So I want to follow up on something that you mentioned about election results coming in and perhaps claims of contestation. We know there's a growing movement that refuses to accept election defeat and hundreds of elected officials and candidates on the ballot around the country who have falsely claimed the 2020 election was rigged. What does election denialism pretend for the future of elections in our democracy?
0: Well, if it continues, uh, even as it is, much less strengthens than democracy itself and the republic itself will will deteriorate and potentially even fall. I hope not. And I hope we're talking about a future a nightmare that will not happen as we approach Halloween. Maybe, maybe it will all disappear uh, once Halloween is over. But I doubt it. Uh, look, I, I guess we shouldn't point to too many specific cases. But I was just shocked over the weekend. I think it was Sunday uh, in an interview on CNN uh, with, uh, Carrie Lake, the Republican candidate for governor in, uh, in Arizona. And she's the, the thing most disturbing about her is I think she actually believes all this nonsense about stolen elections. Uh, not that I support the ones who, who, um, simply say it and are hypocrites for doing it. They know it isn't true, but she seems to believe it. And she was asked, uh, are you going? Do you think that uh, your election is uh, is going to be legitimate? And will you accept the results? And and she said twice, "Well, I'm going to win, and I will accept that result, or something to that effect." She said it twice, meaning if her opponent wins, I guess we'll hear a different story. Oh, the the election was stolen. Well, that's a terrible message to give to uh, fellow voters and her party members who. Clearly supporter strongly, it's it's uh, hard to hard to phantom, and that that is the kind of uh, response if it becomes more general, that will in fact destroy the American Republic. I mean, lots of democratic republics, have fallen. Why would we be any different?
1: Larry, you mentioned the importance of the candidates that have been nominated. And Kyle, I want to bring you in on this question as well. One of the most competitive races in the midterms is in Georgia, is the Georgia Senate race. What does Herschel Walker's candidacy tell us about political strategies that prioritize candidate celebrity over substance and character?
2: Um, Well, look, I mean, I think that for republicans they their voters have kind of tended almost tended to prefer those kinds of candidates because you know they they don't really like um, they don't really like government necessarily or they're very skeptical of government they are be less likely to value the sort of past government experience and i think also from a republican perspective you could look at donald trump and say hey that worked for us you know that at least donald trump did win, win once um, in 2016 when sort of more kind of establishment oriented uh, uh, Republican candidates like Mitt Romney and John McCain ended up losing in in two thousand eight and and twenty twelve and um and so maybe there's just kind of more of a desire at this particular moment for um for those kinds of candidates. You know, the trouble is that. In a general election setting, a lot of those candidates can effectively be unvetted, and there can be you know damaging things that come out about them. Um, I guess the flip side is that you know we, we're also in a time where probably candidate scandal probably matters less than it than it did in the past, and so um, some things that seem like they might be fatal to a candidacy are in fact, survivable. Um, And, you know, obviously, um, you know, I guess you could say, well, if Republicans had a different candidate in Georgia, maybe they'd be leading right now. Um, But who knows? And and Herschel Walker may very well still end up winning.
1: So in addition to Georgia, other key competitive Senate races include Nevada and Pennsylvania, Sabato's crystal ball also has Arizona and New Hampshire as lean Democratic and North Carolina, Ohio and Wisconsin as lean Republican. What does previous polling in these states tell us about how we should be thinking about the elections upcoming this year?
2: Uh, So, you know, one thing one thing about um, a lot of the particularly the Midwestern states is that, you know, we have seen Republicans underestimated a little bit, particularly in 2016 and and 2020. Um, And I think that's gone into a little bit of our thinking as to why we've kept states like Ohio and Wisconsin, it leans Republican or, or better the whole cycle. And I feel like that's sort of being vindicated. I mean, look, we haven't had the election yet, so who knows, but um, it does seem like the Republicans at least have um, kind of modest leads in those races. Um, you know, North Carolina is a state where, um, you know, the Republicans uh, have generally clawed out the, the, the tough elections over the past several cycles. And so, you know, that does uh, to, you know, that, 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 does factor into our, uh, our thinking, you know, Arizona, New Hampshire, it's a place where you've also got Republican candidate quality problems. But look, I mean, it's possible that, you know, that over the next few weeks that things will, you know, maybe what we've sort of been waiting for this Republican wave, like maybe it'll actually hit, you know, maybe, maybe things are going to trend that way, um, toward the end and maybe, maybe races like that end up, you know, falling back on the toss up column or, you know, Republicans can even win them. You know, we'll, we'll see. But um, it does seem like, you know, generally speaking, Mark Kelly in, um, um, in Arizona and Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire have been, you know, up, up at least a little bit. Yeah, let me let me
0: let me underline something that Kyle said as uh, so we get this question a lot. Are your ratings just determined by the polls? Well, uh, the answer is no. And this year proves it again, because if we had paid attention only to polls, then we wouldn't have the entire cycle had Wisconsin-leaning Republican in the Senate, uh, and we wouldn't have had, uh, really, Ohio and North Carolina-leaning Republican in the Senate either, because the, the early polls, for whatever combination of reasons, were more favorable to the Democratic candidates. But we we try to look at fundamentals, and we also try and rely on people who are experts in their fields in those states and who've been in and around politics for a long time Uh, that matters more than polling to us and i would think from uh, 2016 on most people have learned that polls while usually in the neighborhood of being right are also not infrequently wrong (laughs) and if you depend only on polling you're going to get a lot of races wrong you're going to mislead people about what's actually happening there so uh, I'm I'm delighted that we've uh, apparently we'll see on election day but I'm d- delighted that we've apparently uh caught the trends before there were trends.
1: Larry, I wonder which race you think is the hardest to predict and why.
0: Oh, you know, the hardest one to predict. Uh you could argue Georgia is because um even though the polls show some distance between uh Senator Warnock and Herschel Walker um that doesn't necessarily mean anything in a state that has a runoff for uh, for all these statewide offices if nobody gets 50% plus one. And there's a libertarian in the field who's probably going to get 3 or 4%, and that could easily be enough to throw that into a runoff. So that one becomes incredibly more difficult if there is, in fact, a runoff, and it's at least 50-50 that there will be a runoff. Oh, you know, I guess uh, Pennsylvania would have to be another one. Uh, if you, uh, it's, it's tough to see what's really happening there. And it's worth noting that the polls in Pennsylvania have not been particularly good in past elections, including Senate elections. Uh, Kyle, you remember the, the Toomey-McGinty race in uh, 2016, where McGinty pretty consistently, I believe, led, uh, led Pat Toomey. And Pat Toomey won and it wasn't all that close.
2: Yeah, I mean she I think she led basically every poll the last couple of weeks. I think maybe one was tied. I mean they weren't huge leads, but they were leads and you did have the presidential race too, where, you know, some of the late stuff kinda of picked up Trump in the state, but I you know, the, the polls generally speaking underestimated the Republicans in both 16 and 20 in in that state, and so you know one thing you know we're we're um, we're critical of the polls, but we also want as many of them as possible, uh, and that's a place where there really hasn't been a whole lot of public information over the last couple of weeks. It certainly feels like it's gotten closer, although you know Fetterman was posting these like 10 point leads, which never ever seemed realistic to us. Um, even though I think we you know we still give Fetterman a little bit of an edge. I think Georgia is probably the the right answer here, if only because you again as Larry mentioned, you've got the runoff component. Um, And, you know, just in, I just remember talking to somebody, um, you know, involved in Senate races recently about these, about these races, about the, you know, the battlefield. And this person also thought Georgia was the hardest to figure and, and also felt like they had the least amount of sort of control over it in the sense that, you know, you, you not only have to finish with more votes, we also get over have to get over fifty just to you know to, to end the election effectively, and um, you know you have a runoff and it's under totally different circumstances. You know by that time maybe um, either the Republicans or the Democrats will have the requisite number of seats they need, or maybe it'll decide the Senate just like just like the two races did in in 2020, and and you, you're operating under a totally different you know turnout dynamic. It's a standalone election this time in December, um, so that makes it I think that makes it hard
0: and uh, events and circumstances can change that's a month (laughs) and Mm -hmm. uh, these days you know a few a few uh, a week much less three or four weeks can produce a a very different uh, landscape and that could affect the race as well it's impossible to say how people will look at the race once you get a month out from everybody else's election and the national money will flow uh like we we haven't even seen this year and we've seen plenty of it i mean this is going to be a nine to ten billion dollar midterm uh, far and away uh, the record even considering uh, the uh, the inflation factor so a lot of things can and will happen if there is a runoff as we saw in uh 2000 uh 2020 and 2021 for the two senate seats in georgia
1: Larry, you've stated that elections come down to who turns out to vote. When we look back on this election, which group of voters do you think will be at the center of the narrative? And I guess another way of putting that is, which group of voters aren't getting enough attention right now that they should be getting in the media coverage?
0: You know, we get asked that every election cycle, and our answer is always every group matters in close elections. You're talking about potentially a few thousand votes. Uh, in even a Senate race or governor's race, uh, a few hundred in some of the closest House races. So I don't think it's particularly helpful to point to one group or another. You know, everybody's got a soccer mom group, uh, to mention one that was used back in the 90s. And, you know, everybody's looking at Latinos, Hispanics uh, now because there's been a little bit of an edging toward Republicans in at least some places around the country. But, you know, Uh, Black voter turnout is extremely important. And and do blacks vote 95% Democratic or is it 85% Democratic? Well, these things matter at the margins. And, uh, you know, we'll we'll have to see how much of a gender gap there is, particularly among white women versus white men, because of potentially the the overturning of Roe v. Wade. There's so many variables. And I, I think it's just terribly simplistic to pick out one subgroup and say, here's the critical factor in the election of 2022. It's just simply not true.
1: Kyle, in 36 of 39 midterm elections since the the start of the Civil War, the party holding the White House has lost ground in the House. Can you give us an update on where the crystal ball is on House ratings this week with just three weeks to go?
2: Yeah. So, um, you know, the Republicans continue to be, I think, strongly favored to flip the House of Representatives. You know, our, our general thought has been a a Republican gain of somewhere in the teens, you know, frankly, um, I think if you, if you allocate the toss-ups evenly, you get a Republican gain of 14, which would put them at 227 seats, you know, honestly, like I'm thinking they probably would do a little bit better than that. That's just sort of sort of my guess as to sort of my own feel as to the trajectory of things. Um, you know, we'll see, you know, we, we thought earlier in the cycle, maybe the Republicans would get into the 20s. I could definitely, you know, I could see that. We're not there quite yet, but maybe that's where, um, where where we end up. I don't know. What do you think of that, Larry?
0: Yeah, I I've been saying around 230. The Republicans would end up with around 230 seats. Now, that still has them gaining... I guess what in the ten they're still in, be seventeen yeah, yeah. upper they're upper teens, but I could see it low two thirties. Uh, I could also see it turning out to be upper two twenties. Uh, what I have a hard time seeing is Democrats retaining two eighteen. I, I just don't see where the numbers are.
2: Yeah, there's just too many. I mean, there are a bunch of close races, and there's still a lot of like outside spending activity in, in seats that that you'd think of are sort of the low some of the lowest hanging fruit for republicans but on the other hand the democrats are defending this big playing field um there have been some biden you know plus double you know uh, seats that biden won by double digits that are clearly in play in places like oregon and new york etc um just recently just today the um, one of the big republican outside groups dropped uh, you know four million dollars against sean patrick maloney who's the uh, chairman of Democratic congressional campaign committee some of that may be like you know they, they want to go after the guy who's in charge of the other side. But I think it's also you know legitimately a competitive race that he is in. So um, I just think there are too many competitive seats in Democratic turf for Democrats to be able to hold on. I I agree fully.
1: And we also know that the party in the White House has lost state legislative seats in all but two midterms since 1900s. Are there any updates on what's happening at the state level elections?
2: Uh, we're gonna have an update um, in the crystal ball um, later this week from Lou Jacobson, who's our go-to person for state legislative and state executive offices and um, he's making a few changes this week, um, sort of a sort of a mixed bag. Um, I could definitely see you know the Republicans probably netting seats. One thing is that the Republicans have done so well in state legislatures over the past decade plus. That, um, you know, maybe they don't have a ton of room to gain, um, but they, you know, there are some competitive chambers in some, you know, bluish states like Colorado and Oregon, um, you know, so so usually the, the trend is that the president's party will, will lose ground in the state legislatures, too. And I mean, that you know, you probably would imagine that that, that would happen, uh, broadly speaking, even though there are, there are competitive chambers on both sides.
0: And I think it's important to note uh, what Kyle was saying in state legislatures actually applies to the House of Representatives, too. I'm sure, Kyle, you've gotten this question a lot, as I have. Well, the Republicans gained 63, 64 seats in Obama's first midterm. Um, You know, is this going to be the same? Is there going to be a Republican landslide? Well, there aren't aren't 63 competitive seats that they could pick up. It's not going to be anything close to that, because conditions have changed a lot from 2010 to, to 2022.
2: Yeah and and you know the the I think in um in when when the republicans made that huge gain in, in 2010 I think they were only starting maybe in the high 170s in terms of total seats you know, they won 213 in in 20 uh, in 2020 so it's sort of unfair to think oh well they got you know they, they got to win 30 40 50 seats to have a good election no that's not true you know I mean obviously the majority itself is valuable and you could get to a decent sized majority by just you know 230 235 seats by just netting you know, 20 or so or somewhere in the high teens. So um, you got always got to look at the starting point, um, um, you know, it, it, when, when you're thinking about this.
1: So we have a couple of listener questions. But before we get to those, those two questions, um, Larry, I want to ask you, you famously said that politics is a good thing. And recently you gave this podcast and the center a new tagline uh, by saying that when people are disillusioned by their government, politics is everything. What would you do to make politics good again?
0: Well, I'd need a magic wand and I'd have to use it for, you know, a good day or two in order to uh, to get the system back in shape. Uh, I'd reduce partisanship. It's not that partisanship is a bad thing. It helps to produce choices in policy as well as character and candidates for the average voter. So that's a good thing. But too much of a good thing is a bad thing and the the intense partisanship uh which in some cases has produced semi-cults is not healthy for american democracy it wouldn't be healthy for any system um so that would be one thing second i would uh, i would dramatically increase voter turnouts in every racial and ethnic and age group and pretty much any any group you could imagine because a society is healthier and a democracy is healthier when more people are participating and participating in an informed way. But, uh, you know, do I think those things are going to happen? Well, easy answer for me is not in my lifetime because it's not many years. So, uh, you know, I'm going to be right on that one. Um, you know, there are other things I could suggest. Kyle, do you have any ideas?
2: You just wish you could sort of turn down the temperature, generally speaking. Um, but, you know, these are also like the things that, that come up in politics. I mean, it's stuff that people really care about. I mean, like, you know, we talk about abortion a lot this election cycle. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a very heated topic in which it's hard to come up with solutions that everyone will like or, you know, would support. And so there's naturally gonna be a lot of conflict, but um, you know, it's just that the, everything is extremely heated and you wish you could figure out ways to turn that down. I, you know, if there were easy answers, maybe we, we, we could do those things already.
0: And there, there aren't easy answers, but the restoration of civility to the extent that it's possible. You know, we all raise our voices from time to time. We all get into heated arguments. But, um, you know, the more people yell and scream and don't listen to one another, the greater the chances that the system won't survive or that it will lead to violence. And, you know, we're we're at a time when it is not inconceivable to imagine the United States uh, breaking apart in some fashion or another. And we've had some research in that area at the center for politics and it's disturbing. So uh, we have to work at it. These things don't just happen. And many democracies have, have uh, declined uh, deteriorated or ceased to be in America, in the U S history and in not U S history, in world history. Uh, So, You know, this is something we ought to think about. We ought to care about. And I hope we do. Some people do. Some people don't. And um, I'm afraid the number who don't may be growing.
1: Kyle, our first listener question goes to you. What's happening in Pennsylvania 12?
2: So this is an interesting race. So this is basically the Pittsburgh seat. Um, And you have a retiring Democratic House member named Mike Doyle, been around for a long time. And he uh, so he, you know, he's retiring and um, a pretty left wing Democratic candidate won the nomination to replace him, uh, Summer Lee, who's a member of the uh, state house in Pennsylvania. And her Republican opponent is also named Mike Doyle, which is there's a Republican and, and um, you know, he's he's not some sort of prominent candidate, hasn't raised much money. But there's some concern for Democrats that between them having kind of a left wing candidate, plus the fact that the, the Republican candidate is the same name as the outgoing Democrat that, um, you know, that, that, that this is like a 20 point Biden seat or something, but that you could actually have a really close race in here for those sort of confusing reasons. And I've actually heard that there's some polling indicating that the race is actually pretty close. So, um, we're, by the time you listen to this, it might be out, but we're writing something about potential upsets, um, that you could look for. And this is actually one of the races we we're going to say something.
1: Name recognition matters.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a very strange, um, very strange kind of uh, kind of circumstance. And of course, you know, Biden plus 20 seats are not seats that Republicans would normally have a chance to win. And maybe they really don't in this instance, but it's at least worth noting, I think.
1: So Larry, you get our next listener question and our final question for the day, because it actually comes from students in your class this semester. So we sat down last week and we took um, the competitive races that the students defined as either toss-up or lean races in crystal ball ratings. Um, so, lean Democrat or lean Republican, and they did some analysis. They put together um, what was what's been raised and spent by each of the campaigns, and we also did an analysis uh, and and came up with spending of outside uh, outside spending uh, for groups that oppose those candidates, and then outside spending in support of those candidates. Uh, what they came up with was the average for Senate candidates raised is at uh, twenty over twenty million at this point. Outside spending uh, in opposition of candidates is is on average 9.6 million. Outside spending and support is over 25 million for Senate candidates. For the House races, uh, the average for those competitive seats is 2.3 million raised. Uh, Outside opposed spending is about half a million and 1.7 of outside spending and support. Uh, so the question that they have is uh, goes back to your your statement earlier about the the cost of this election. Is the rising costs of elections and outside spending a problem?
0: Yeah, if you don't have enough money and you're running, <laughs> uh, that certainly is a problem. Look, there's a bottomless pit of money for politics, just just bottomless, and it goes up far beyond the rate of inflation. And you know, I can remember when entire presidential campaigns were run on less for both candidates combined were run on less than some of the Senate candidates are spending for one state and they didn't even have a primary. Um, so look, uh, it's it's an insoluble problem. You know, I, I did a couple books on campaign finance and one thing I learned is uh, books on campaign finance don't sell. And the second thing I learned is that whatever you recommend will never happen, uh, and that nothing you recommend in the end will really stop the flow of money in politics. You you can't do it. You can't stop the flow of money because there are too many interests uh, for whom politics and elections are absolutely critical to their health, and they're going to spend what they have to spend to get what they think they need. And we're you know, Tocqueville identified uh, a long time ago that. America is a land of interests, a land of interest groups, and to understand America, you have to understand the interest groups. That will probably always be true as long as we're a healthy democracy. So I tell reformers, spend your energy elsewhere. Try to find something that's doable because reforming the campaign finance system is probably not very doable.
1: Larry and Kyle, thank you so much for spending the time today. Podcast listeners, Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center4politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.